Welcome to the Swedish Junior Hockey Podcast. With us today is uh, Glenn Hoffren. Is that how you how how you close? All Glenn right. Heffron. Heffron. Hoffren. Heffron. Heffron. It's close enough. Uh, welcome to the podcast. So, this episode is brought to you by Scandlux, your home for Scandinavian luxury products for the U.S. market. You can find us at scandlux.com. Um. The reason I caught you on a Facebook post yeah, with your freshman report, we want to talk about that. Sure. But, um, but you're also got a long background in uh, hockey and we want to talk about how you, your interest in juniors, but also long background with USA hockey. So two main reasons I want to talk about one is the freshman report that you publish and then get the inside scoop on USA hockey. Sure. So, so I, I give, me, give little, me the background first. So a little background. I, I was born and raised in Jersey city and everything I've done in hockey has been an ac- absolute accident. Uh, I literally collided with a, a kid at public skating when I was 12. And he said it was those figure skates that I was wearing. I didn't, I didn't know any better. And he said, yeah, I said, and I said, well, these were the skates that were under the tree. And, so uh, he said, oh, you got to get hockey skates. And uh, God bless him. Kevin Russell is a dear friend of mine to this day. Um, <clears throat> I went and got those hockey skates and went back that night to public skate. And he says, well, now we got to get you playing hockey. And I said, well, I, don't, I don't have any equipment. I don't know anything about it. And he said, oh, I'll come to my house afterwards and I'll give you all my old stuff and we'll get you started. And I'm like, wow, okay. And I went there and it turns out his parents knew my mom really well for years going back to their high school days. So it's small, even though Jersey City is a big city, it's kind of, it still has a small town kind of feel to it. Um, and I stayed with it, started refing when I was 15 and started coaching when I was 19 um, got very involved and actually had my first junior team. I think when I was 20, I think I was 20 or 21, um, started, co- started coaching, uh, and managing a junior C team. And then, uh, was asked by the affiliate president at the time to start a junior team at the junior B level and, um, uh, did that. And, the next thing I know, I, I I was getting married, and my wife has a very long history of hockey background. Her brother went to University of Wisconsin, and um, you know he he I don't think he made it off the JV team, but uh, he played there, and um, and she played as well a little bit. And uh, her dad was the affiliate president, which is a role I actually have today. I didn't inherit it, but cronyism. Uh, <laughs> I knew him from from hockey and I was very I was actually very close with him um, and met his daughter. And the next thing you know, we got married and I was getting out. I was getting out of hockey and working, you know, I was working on Wall Street and and I was looking to, you know, we had a family and a daughter, you know, had just been born. And she's OK, you're kind of done with this. And I went to my last what was supposed to be my last league meeting and got elected president totally by accident. It was like they ran me to kind of split the vote and. Uh, and I, as I said, and and I never looked back and then got elected to USA Hockey's board in 97, I believe it was, and served on various councils and committees and then uh, left the board after nine years, but stayed very involved with the junior council, um, ran the Metropolitan Junior Hockey League, which at one point was the longest, oldest running junior hockey league in the country, started by Emil Francis and the New York Rangers uh, back in 1966. And uh, and ran the Atlantic Junior Hockey League, which was, you know, the tier three A and B model that had happened during the 2000s. And then I got out in 2012 and seven months later, they pulled me back and got me involved again. And um, and I, as I said, it's, it is definitely a passion. And so the this report, the origin of this freshman report actually stems from junior hockey um, within the junior council, they had a grant program that was funded through the NHL. And depending on your college commitments and your NHL drafts and signs, kids that were drafted or played in your league, and you would be eligible on a point system for money, but you had to do the work and give them the list of your players. So it always involved researching who your who your players that made it to Division One and Division Three. 
And obviously, you know, the NHL information was pretty easy to come by. You know, once the advent of the internet came around, it was a little bit easier. Um, but you still had to do the research and show USA Hockey that these are your players. And based upon that, they'd split up this this pool of, of about $250,000. And that would come back as a direct subsidy. So we had to do these reports every year. And I just got pretty good at it. And just decided to stay with it and publish. I, you know, I publish it every year. I just do it as a kind of labor of love and want people to see the pathway that, you know, a lot of players take before they enter, uh, before they enter college. So, uh, so, and that's kind of what I, so it was a post and it and had lots and lots of tables and compilation, but it was, it was very compact and very, and, and we'll, we'll dive into it, but um you know, so I didn't start with reading the report when I got interested in junior hockey. So like most people, they, at first, you don't know anything about junior hockey. And then you hear a little bit about what junior is all about. And then you learn a little bit more and so on and so forth. And along that path, I think a lot of people get fed a lot of information, some accurate, some uh, embellished some flat out lies. Um, yeah. And it's difficult, I think. And the reason why this is the main reason I wanted to have you on is, is uh, number one, like I told you in my first connection with you, which was this report is awesome. And, but I think that, you know, the main motive for this podcast is to, in, to educate and inform primarily the Swedish guys now uh, since when they're looking at this, right? So if you're a 18, 19, uh, even the 20 year old that are, that are wanting to come over from Sweden to go play juniors or want to go to college, this stuff is pretty important. Yeah. And so, so let me ask you this question. What are some of the common myths or what are the, some of the common problems or embellishments that you've seen in general? <clears throat> I think I think a lot of junior hockey, particularly tuition-based, has turned transactional rather than transformational. Yep. And what I mean by that is it's about having a full roster, fully paid players, the business of junior hockey, rather than like I've never seen a coach recruit a player on the basis. It's rarely I see a coach. I don't want to say never. I rarely see a coach recruit a player on the basis that their main focus is to make them a better human being. And that really should be what this is, what, what sport, whether you're talking about hockey, lacrosse, soccer, you know, field hockey, badminton sport should be about, you know, making them helping young people become the best version of themselves because most people are not going to make a living as a professional athlete. And, it's the life skills that they need to, to navigate, you know, through the day and, and having coping skills and battling through and junior hockey provides, I think the most unique opportunity for that to occur um, because you are, you are separated from home um, without the a lot of responsibilities to be in a classroom, right? Most of the kids are 18, 19. Um, and so they get that year away of learning to be responsible. And, and I think those are important living with another family being billeted. Um, you know, it, it takes there, there's a give and take in that learning that relationship dynamic. So I think junior hockey creates this environment where you can really develop young people into young, good adults. And, and there's always room for stuff that can go wrong. And, you know, the, you always worry about partying and, and stuff like that. Um, and, and you hope coaches and, and general managers are really dialing into those important issues so that they, they stay safe and not be naive to what they may do, but um, ha help them be informed about, you know, why it's important to kind of stay away from that stuff. Um, so some of the, some of the pitfalls I, I, is the cost factor. Um, there's a lot of money being spent. You know, you, you see some of these programs are costing ten, twelve thousand dollars, um, and I'm not saying there isn't some value for that. 
Um, the question is, is, you know, if it's being done, hey, just so you have that gap year and then you'll go off to school. And if, if something comes of it, D3, D1, awesome. Um, but if not, at least you've had a really good experience. And that's what you, that's what you want. You hope for every every player. Um, there's a lot I, I see. I get stories from families that that hear about where they've been recruited to play for the club. And then September comes along and they're on the second team Yep. when they thought they were going to the first team. And that creates, you know, an unrealized expectation and, 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 you know, a desire to leave and, you know, kids are unhappy about that. Um, and so, you know, you have to call on coaches to be honest about this stuff. And, you know, it is a ladder of development, you know, you, you know, peewees become bantams and good bantams become midgets. And there's a stepladder to this. And, you know, on the junior side of things, you know, back in the 2000s, junior hockey was really tier three junior hockey. The A and B model was doing a really good job at developing good young players. And I think about a player like Charlie McAvoy uh, when he was 15 playing in the Met League, you know, uh, John Carlson was 15 when he so John Carlson I, I love his story his story is great I think he was told by some player development folks that he'd never be more than a d3 player um and and so he was 15 in the Met League 16 in the AJ 17 in the USHL 18 in the OHL and 19 in the National Hockey League and, and that's just an incredible journey and so I think that allowed a player like him to really shine in a, in a good environment. Um, so that those are some of the challenges that I think, um, you know, the, we need more honesty. And, you know, there's a guy who does uh, juniorhockey.com. Uh, he had been involved with that, Stephen Eisler. Very contra- can be very controversial at times, but he's like really big on call, on calling out bad operators and trying to hold them accountable. And I think that's, I think that's a really good thing um, to to have that happen, you know, and sometimes he may get it wrong, but it's not because he's looking to get it wrong. He's looking to, he looks after players. And I think that's a, I think that's a great thing. So um, that's a good watchdog. I call him. So if we look at this uh, freshman report, all right. And so how many years have you done that? Oh, long time. I mean, I, I could probably, I probably should piece it together. Um, just for historical purposes, I, I, I'm sure I have, you know, most of the data files, um, but long, very long time because we, we were needing to generate those certainly back into the early 2000s, I think. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of times I think the initial the initial reports were purely based on word of mouth. You'd call a coach from one of your teams and say, hey any of your kids hit the division one or division three roster this year. And, and you, now you have to think back because if you're in the Met league, you know, if you're like Charlie McAvoy, he played in the Met league, then he goes to NTDP, you know, so he had a couple of years out before it all happened for him. And, and same thing for a, a John Carlson. Right. So when that you, you'd have to start thinking about sometimes coaches changed in your junior league and you, you just lost track of players. So it wasn't until probably, you know, until sites like us college hockey online and uh, those kinds of sites came about that really aggregated the college information really well. Um, and I get hounded like, Hey, you got to do this for girls and you got to do this for D3. And I think people forget like this I, and I do want to do them, but there is a matter of time. Um, and some of them are not as as accurate, you know, as you go, as you go like D3 can D3 gets more intensive of having to go actually back and really track the player because sometimes they don't put their previous junior team or their previous youth team. And, and so there's a lot more work involved with some of the other levels getting accurate information. So, so I've got it pulled up here. So I've got, and I'll attach this in the, in the, in the notes as a link as well. So I've got a PDF. Um, actually, mm-hmm. I got two different ones. One is the 2023 NCAA D1 uh, uh, freshman report, right? Mm-hmm. So here's some things that I <clears> – <throat> so the first thing before we get into the, the what I get out of it when I read it, and i like to get your opinion on it too, but so where's the – so is the data coming from Elite Prospects mainly now or – 
Is it going? There's a cross reference to elite prospects. There's a lot of cross referencing. So I pulled the data from uh, was it College Hockey News um, because one of their they have an important data field and that's the players' date of birth, okay. month, month and year, and that's one of the key pieces of the report so that you can see, you know, and again uh, only because I know the data from the CDC that talks about birth rates in periods of time and july through october is actually the heaviest birth months those are the months that more people are born but yet january february march april may we have more players from those months advancing than say you know october november december yeah and certainly you know even july and august so um, th- that's an important piece. And and some of the, the U.S. College Hockey Online site does not have that data field. So I didn't want to I didn't want to have to recreate it. The other nice thing about the College Hockey News, uh, every player, when you copy the roster into a spreadsheet, every player is linked to their own individual stat page. And this was the first year that we actually put the stats into uh just just a low level just points and games played um you know point production and games played just to see how these freshmen are doing um and and that's that was fascinating to you know to see you know where where these players are you know i saw that too that's actually that's one of the bullet points that i that i wrote down was basically not just where are they coming from but how good are they right it's well, what, listen, it, it's hard for a freshman to crack just about any lineup because you're competing against for spots, you know, with and against players that are three and four years older than you. And in, if you're a natural freshman, you might have a player, players on your team that are five and six years older than you. Yeah. So let's dive into this one. Uh, so the first little table that I've got on here uh, is. Men's NCAA D1 freshman class by district, and mm-hmm. and it's got it sorted by an interesting. Uh, I love this one because it's it's D1 PERF, I guess performance to player ratio. Yes, and so that ratio represents. So if you look at Michigan and and Michigan and Minnesota are usually they're always leading the pack. It's often Minnesota as the, as the lead. Um, and, and I guess Michigan had an exceptional year this year. Now you see that Minnesota actually had more division one freshmen than Michigan, but M- Michigan's registered player pool is much smaller. It's half the size. So it's basically so, a per capita. Yes. It's a performance based upon total proportion of players. So yeah. if I have 6% of the, if I have 6% of the total players registered in the youth category in, in USA hockey, and I have 6% of the division one freshman class, well, I'm proportional. I'm at right where I, I, I should be. So if you take a look at New York, New York is 9.15, but yet their total division one is 9.06. So they're almost, they're at a hundred percent production. That's a, that's that's kind of where you want to be. You want to be at least equal. And when you're better, that's that's a that's a that's a good day. You're you're happy about that. And and not surprising. I mean, so so this is not very shocking data, but it's what I love about this is this is facts. This is not opinions. No. This is this is factual data. Um so basically what it says here is that most of the D1 players uh, and and a high percentage of players are coming from the Minnesota, the Michigan, New England, and Atlantic. So, which ones are considered Atlantic? So, Atlantic is the affiliate or is the district that I uh, I am pre- president of. Okay. So, Atlantic has is comprised of three states: New Jersey, Eastern PA, and Delaware. And um, so we're we're a unique situation where we are multi-state but only one affiliate where new england is five affiliates five states and some of the other districts around the country are multi-affiliate uh are multi-affiliate districts where we we are not us and mid-am have multiple states but only 
only have, I believe, one affiliate in our in our district. So Michigan, Minnesota, uh, Atlantic, New York, and Massachusetts are all one affiliate, one district uh, yep. operations. Wow. So when you're looking at Massachusetts, 35,000 youth, eight U to 18 U in just Massachusetts. That's Yes. I didn't know that that was that. I mean, Minnesota is big. Okay. And that's yep. what everybody knows. But I didn't know Minnesota was, I mean, uh, Massachusetts was that big. Yeah. They, and, and listen, they're normally in the top four. It's just, they just maybe have an unusual, this may be just an unusual year, you know, for, for them because they're normally up at the top of the, they're normally at the top of the pile. I think two years ago, Atlantic and Mass were tied each with uh with 30 players numerically yeah but they're normally you know they're normally have a very strong performance but it's it, the other takeaway for me when i'm reading this is that it's a it's a fairly other than the top ones there it's a fairly even spread i mean to, yeah. to, to a certain degree all right next one mm -hmm. i'm flipping down here uh so now this tells you all right freshman class by which state are they coming from? So it's a little bit of the same things. Yep. But then it also brings up here, huh? So 298 total U.S. players yep. broken down by state. So I'm in North Carolina, four of them. I'm going to go now into, I'm not going to do it now, but later on I'm going to go in and look at which four are they in elite prospects? Because uh, I'm yep. curious, you know, which yep. four, I probably know who they are. Uh but then also Canada, 139. Yeah. I didn't know that it was that many. So yeah. that was a takeaway for me. The um the the interesting thing that that was different 25 years ago, 30 years ago, it was the, it was the exact opposite. It was one-third Americans and basically two-thirds Canadian in the division one um in the division one rank and file. So this is um, this is good thing that you know that we're we're making the progress we should make, um, and uh, I, I'm I'm really proud to of our I'm proud of USA Hockey and the accomplishments. You know, uh, there's always there's always room to improve and there's always things to you know to criticize about. That's the easy part, but the reality is USA Hockey and all of its programs and all of its affiliates do a really uh, an amazing job at at, at player development. So. Uh, I think we've done well. I think the BC League, you know, I, it was the way it was explained to me. The BC League started out kind of well; they've been around a while, but they start to get really good like 25 years ago because Eastern colleges who had roots out that way and new coaches, because a lot of Canadian coaches would send their players out there because they didn't want them on a bigger stage. They want to kind of hide them. And when you when you say BC, we're talking about British Columbia for those. Yeah, the, the BCHL, the yeah. BCHL, and 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 they're you know if you look at their numbers, they're they are a top, uh, they're a top Canadian league. They're the they're the number one Canadian league in feeding uh, players to college hockey. So we're, yeah, we're going to get to that one. The other one here uh, is all right if you're foreign born, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe this. Maybe this is a little bit because of of the war, but only four Russians. Um, so that is that could be predicated on a couple of different things. Um, there could be more, but if they if a player lists himself as being from Michigan and his address is like he hails from Michigan and grew up in Michigan, he might be Russian born. So okay. there, there is some, like there's got to be a plus or minus. This is not perfect. Correct. Correct. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad, yeah, I'm they, glad you brought that up. And then of course, out of the not, this was interesting as a Swede here. Uh, Sweden leads is pretty, pretty, pretty high up. Finland, Sweden, not surprising, but I didn't know that it was that many Swedes, but, but all in all, so 41 non us Canadian, um, out of the total, and out of those twelve were Swedes, uh, yeah. not that many. Um, not that many. Well, I th I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. I think you know 
university in the European nations is very different. Very, very different. Um, from a cost standpoint, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of differences. And I tend to think that the European model of high, and I really is something what I want to be a better student of, is understanding the European model. Um, but I think they do a, an exceptional job in the elite levels of hockey. Yeah. And there's not a lot of compelling reasons to leave Europe to come here. I mean, we've got great programs and and they all, all the kids seem to have a really good experience. Otherwise, they'd never come. But I think Europe does a, you know, everything tells me they do an exceptional job. You know, the NHL spends a lot of money having their scouts and hockey developers over there to work with their draft picks. And so there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. All right. Let's go down the list here. So the other one is uh, now we're getting into kind of the, 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 what I really, because, you know, we talk a lot about reverse engineering, right? So for the parents that are, they're listening and they're, they're kind of like, well, you know, Hey, I want to play in college. Kid says, I want to play in college. I want to play. For, for, you don't hear a 12 year old say, I want to play in college. Where, what do they say? They want to say, they say, I want to play in the NHL. I, I think it depends on where you live. Um, you know, I live in New Jersey and I don't, no disrespect to Princeton University, but I don't hear a lot of kids, you know, saying, hey, they want to play for Princeton University no. grow up. But they I'll, say, I want to play for the Devils. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my, my kid was definitely one of them. Um, but I will tell you that I think if you're in Minnesota, I think you, I want to be a gopher is a very, very common thing. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. So I think it has a lot to do with, and there's a ton of division one and division three college hockey played in Minnesota as in Michigan, you know, and I, I think that, you know, I think that matters. I think when you have proximity, I'll bet you Massachusetts kids, you know, think I want to be a terrier, you know, the, I want to be in the crimson. You know, I, I think yep. there is a, a proximity plays a role. Uh, I, I think a big role in that. So the next page that I go to here out of the 478 players, what mm-hmm. I think is really, really interesting is, and this is where I think a lot of the leagues in juniors, I mean, all roads to college hockey goes through juniors. Let's 90- and this has been consistent for a very long time, 95% of uh, college freshmen will have played junior hockey the year before. It's just the finishing school for it. That's no, um, that does not discount everything that happened from when they were a mite, squirt, peewee, bantam, you know. Let me ask you, let me ask you about it, because I'm curious, and I've never had anybody actually explain it to me, but you know, if you're a lacrosse player, you're a football player, basketball player, you complete. And I have everybody is not involved in hockey. And I said, well, you know, talking about my son and, you know, he's playing juniors and they're like juniors. What's that all about? Right. So what's the origin behind? Because if you're a basketball player, you don't go play junior basketball. You go straight into college from or you may actually go early from yeah, where you, you you go to pro. Um, I think because of the mainstreaming of those sports like basketball, baseball, football, those are the cornerstone sports of you know uh, for for the uh, for the entire country. I think um, yeah. I mean, certainly there are parts of the South that are you know when I see in Allen, Texas, a fifty-five million dollar high school football stadium built, you know, it makes you wonder, but. Then when you see they have 25,000 people sitting in it watching their high yeah. schools, then you realize why. Um, so there are certain things that, you know, um, th- that I think are a systemic part of those sports. Um, and it's just the natural, it's just the natural progression. Um, the NFL would be nowhere without college football. You know, it's just, it's just the way but, it is. But why does the, why does, col- how did it come about that colleges? Wait, I mean, I see the advantage, of course. I'd rather have a 20-year-old freshman than a than a 17-year-old freshman if I have a choice. So I can see why they don't want to change it, right? Yeah, I, I, but I also think this there's data out there that you can find that show 
that hockey players lead academically in completion of schooling, uh, lead from an academic standing score standpoint. Like hockey players, both male and female, do exceptionally well in college academically. Yeah. And so I I think I, I think when when you have that level of success, if you had like huge dropout rates or failure rates, it, the opinion might change. But that's not what's happening. So why mess with something that's working really well? And it's it's a great question. I'm just giving you kind of my supposition about it. I I, I didn't know if it was coming down from that's how it was in Canada and juniors are so strong in Canada that that's what where everybody kind of went and. Well, I, I think the the notion that you know that's certainly where the NHL shops for players, um, major junior, of course, and the USHL and and you know a couple of other programs, the North American Hockey League. I think the you know I think the notion that a player leaves high school is not quite ready. And what was always remarkable to me, they, they recognize he's not ready, but will commit to him when he's a freshman in high school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank God that practice is stopping. But, you know, because now you're talking about six years before he gets there. Yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, there's a lot of things that can change in that in that period of time. So um, I don't know. It's a great it's a great question that probably and I think I actually heard this answer. There's part of me that tells me that Red Genron spoke about this years ago at a symposium I was at and I'm just I'm not recalling there is a there is a history on it now it makes yeah. me want to go back and look why why well, that is. it'll be another episode all right next next thing here here's the interesting part is because this is the where the where the where the misconception is and I don't know how many junior programs that I've talked to and they're so proud of how they develop their players and how much they promote their players to the next level yep Right. And and. Uh, but and again, this is factual data. Where are the freshmen coming from? They're not coming from tier three. Um, I think there's probably some. Well, advancement. I don't think it's it's but I don't I, I think when you have a top team. You don't you don't look at your third junior team for players. You're looking at the very best players at that given moment that you can develop. So, but that's not to say that you know a third tier team in in a, in a structured organization that has three junior teams um, or two. <clears throat> that's not to say that there isn't some advancement that happens. It's just less notoriety. And as I, I as we said offline before. You know, some of the college club, it's it's no longer you just walk in and and you're on the team. Yeah, college club has gotten so good. You know, I mean, look, maybe some of the you know the Division three teams, it's a little bit it's a little bit easier, but certainly in the Division one and some of the Division two teams, they're 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 good teams and they're, they're very good. And and you you gotta you you gotta hit the tryouts and make the team. But if we look at this out of the 478 um so from the u.s mm -hmm. there's 313 from the u.s and 188 come from the ushl so 60 percent of the total is coming from the ushl 103 or 32 percent is coming from the null and ncdc which is considered a tier tier two organization or tier two league has 12 mm -hmm. now granted there's a lot more null teams than there are ncdc teams but but then when you're looking at one kid went straight from prep school into to, yeah. to, to d1 and then when we're combining na3 and ehl all right so 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 what's missing here of course is usphl well, I count the NCDC in that. I, I would imagine most of those. Okay. Because it's the same family of, of clubs. If you have an NCDC team, it's high. I think it's highly likely you also have a USPHL premier team. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I don't. I. But, I think, but if you're if you're playing D, if you want to play D one, you better have a path that goes through Null or USHL. Or your odds are not very good. 
No, that's not necessarily true. And I'm going to tell you why, because out of that number in the USHL, many of those players that were last in the USHL, almost half of them were in the NA the year before. Okay. And where were they the year before that? They might've been NCDC or in some other junior program or midget program, of course, or prep school or so this ladder. And, and that, that's what brought up out the challenge to create the commit list, Ah, which we can get into in a minute. Cause I got, a, I kind of got called privately. I got a couple of people that reached out to me and said, Oh, you're just kind of feather bedding for your junior friends and just trying to tell this one-sided junior story. But um, look, certainly, as a finishing school, which is what I think you have to call it, it's a finishing school before you enter college, and and it's a gr- it's a great experience. You, you know, you're playing a tough schedule. You're getting used to that grind. You know, every Division One player that I personally know, all has shared one common uh, comment when they get to Division One. It's a job. It's yeah. work. Yeah. It's hard work, and this, every single player that I've encountered has all said the same thing. It, you work. It's hard work to be a division one athlete. Yeah. So, you know, and that resonates with me. So I think, you know, and this is, and think about it. So what's the most games you'll play, you know, even if like, if you're hockey East 36 and you've made it to the, the frozen four um, in the USHL, it's like 70, 80 game season. If you're making it to the end. So it's a grind. And so you really learn, you know, how to hone your craft and you get a lot of experience and you're getting good coaching. I mean, you think like, if you think about some of the coaches that have passed through, you know, the USHL and I mean, I, you know, John Cooper, you know, and his story is amazing. You think about, he was a high school coach because his, the judge he was clerking for said, well, you coach my son's team and he never coached hockey in his life. You know, now he's, then he goes to the Central States League, then to the North American League, then to the USHL, then to the American League and wins titles in every one of those places, you know, um, and there's Rutherford, there's been a ton of great talent coming out of, out of these junior programs. So I, I think that's, our, you know, th- those are all good things. And, but every one of these leagues could these, you know, just because the USHL has that volume of number. Those kids didn't start in the USHL. Correct. Correct. There's a few of them that did, right? Well, there's certainly a large number of players that didn't have their commit, but the USHL is just a really important step of the development process. It's what they did beforehand matters too. It's what got them into the USHL. So or the North American League or the BC League and so on. Yeah. So since since you mentioned the BC, you know, so if we flip over to the Canadian side, mm-hmm. you know, the, the two big drivers for for D1 commits is BCHL, huge, and then AJHL. Yep. Then you have a few of the other ones, but it's that's where the where the majority of them are are coming from. Um, let me see what the other one. So let's let's flip over now to uh but before I go to the commit report. The other one I thought was was interesting is then the age that they are. Yeah. Um, so when they're when they're coming in, you know, most of them most of them have exhausted their 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 junior eligibility before they go into as a freshman. Very few are are um you know, very young. Of course, you have some that are going in, and they have one more, more, one more year of juniors left. Yeah, but the majority of them are very mature young yep. men. Yeah, I mean, you've had some rare examples. I think they call it the two-four-two rule, where some some players have gone in as natural freshmen, do two years, didn't kind of work out. They go back and they play their twentieth year. Their, you know, their they're 20 years old. There's still one more year of eligibility. They go back and play junior hockey and then they finish their last two somewhere else. That doesn't happen very often, but um, I, look, I, you know, I, I did this birth month report cause I just thought it was a, uh, just an interesting 
thing. Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, that. so, so if you're, if you're a, you know, so what does that really mean? That if you're a 05 or 04 birth year, who are those people? Well, you got to be pretty dang good yep. to, 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 to break in. And, and some of them are. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I had one last year on last year's report that was from the OHL. Yeah. Somebody wrote me, explain to me how you have a major junior player playing college hockey. And as it turned, I actually had to do some research on it and found out that it was an NCAA mistake. They, they cleared him to play. Um, and <laughs> it was a mistake. It should not have, it should not have been that, but they couldn't go back on it at that point. That's how it was explained to me. So, you know, every once in a while, these reports produce some outliers that you, you just kind of scratch your head and, you know, seeing a 2005, like, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. So, and the last one from this report that I thought was notable was of course the, the one that we talked about offline and that is, well, how well are, how well they are, are they faring? So when they're coming in, how many games did they play? How many goals assist and 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 so on? So uh, I'm not going to go in. You got a friend in the background there. That's uh, my that's my Maxine. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. So so it's in here, and I think it's just you know we could go so granular within this, but it's really really cool data, good data that that we want to look at. That's the first year that we've done that. Okay. I, I've never I've never done this before with with that data, but I did think it was important to see. Um, in pre in other years, we've actually taken the freshman class and then examined them as sophomores, and you'll see some interesting shifts there where kids have left and go to play because they want to play, and they'll leave a Division One program in favor of a division three school because they know they'll play there. Yeah. So there, there is some of that interesting stuff that, and you're right, you can get really granular with this. So let's flip over then to the, to the second report, the NCAA commit report version yeah. two, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there was a, an initial mistake in the crunching of the data that the good folks at the uh, SJHL called me out on. And I, I immediately fixed it. It was, we were missing a couple of players that um, they were, it was in the count in a couple of places, but it didn't tr transpose over uh, in one or two of the tables, but we got it fixed and, and, and. But you appreciate that means they're, they're, they're paying attention to it. They're reading it. Absolutely. I, I had no problem with it. Um, I, I think I had a hard time trying to explain to them that the data was pulled from August one through Feb 26, and they had a couple of other kids. They said, oh, no, that number should be, you know, 12. And I I respect that. I just said, look, I, you're right about those extra players. It's just that they were committed in April, May, and, and, and June and, and not, you know, in, in the time frame of this report. But what made this, this was kind of forced out of some uh, kind of a little message back and forth between a couple of people that came after me and said, hey, this is kind of biased and, you know, the, the freshman report is only telling part of the story. These kids are all getting their commitments at prep school and midgets and you're not telling that side. I said, I, I don't think that that's entirely true. I said, I'm sure there's some, but I think the bulk of these players are getting their commitments at, at, at junior hockey. But you know what? You've lit the fuse. So I'm going to do the work. And, and we dug in and we did pull this. Uh, I pulled this data from neutral zone um, and I know a couple of people were upset. Hey, they didn't count so-and-so. And, you know, if they don't report the commit, it's hard for us. So it was amazing to see the number of commits that did get reported immediately after, after this. Yeah. So there were a few more um, that came in after that were kind of rushed in. Um, and I, I also use the rink net report as a, as a cross reference. And, and again, using, elite prospects to try, just you're always cross-referencing data to make sure that that you're that you have a, a verified check and you know that there's accuracy to the report so the point behind this was to say okay of these commits that occurred this in this period you know where were they were they living in the the billet and living at home issue um there there is some uh 
there's a little bit of conjecture into that number, but it's pretty darn close because when you start looking at who the commits are, USHL, North American League, prep school, you know, when you and academy teams, those are all players that don't live at home by, you know, almost universally. Um, you know, you, the Titans might have a, one or two local kids. Um, yeah. You can always see that. But overall, you know, these players don't live at home. And, and so Minnesota High School, you can count for sure do. Um, and so that was kind of the basis. U16, um, you know, a lot of them don't are kids that were not living at home. So uh, and that required some intense, you know, going through elite prospects yeah. and making sure like when I see a kid from michigan and he's playing for the you know new jersey avalanche well okay he's obviously a kid that's not living at home so i think it was just important to illustrate that um that most players are not living at home when they get their college commitment so so yeah so that's that's an interesting one uh uh it tells me if you're going to play d1 you got you got to be willing if you're unwilling to leave home, there's a good chance that you're not going to play D1. Uh, yeah. At some point, at some point, not necessarily do you need to move away when you're 12. And and yet we have people in the tier one ranks that are recruiting kids now as young as 11 years old. Yeah. I know I know of a goaltender that was recruited out of our affiliate by a Michigan coach. Like, you know, this is the kind of stuff, and I probably shouldn't take that shot, but like, that's just absurd. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but those, those are the things that are happening. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I think it's valuable for parents to, to understand, you know, where, where this is happening. I, I, of the players, I've had a bunch of families that I've advised over the years. I do that really as a passion because you want to help people. Um, and, and you tell them, have a realistic expectation and look for where the work is going to be. So if you're, you know, if you're a, if you're a senior this year and you know you're going to play at least one year of junior hockey, maybe two, well, then shouldn't you be looking at schools that have a big graduation class of juniors and 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 sophomores in two years time? Because then that means they're going to have some holes to fill. Yeah. And if you're realistic and not looking at it from the standpoint of, hey, I'm, I'm it's D1 or bust. Well, and you're looking legitimately at D3. I mean, I tell every single player, do yourself a favor, get your academic advisor at the school, get the appointment set, then call the hockey coach and say, Hey coach, I'm interested in your school and I'm coming on this date. Can I spend some time with you? Because now that coach knows you're genuinely interested in the school, like do your work. And, you know, so many players make the mistake of thinking, Oh, there's going to be scouts in the building. Yeah. They'll, they'll see me. It's not, it's really, I mean, that's part of it, but it's not how it works in most cases. So. All right. Well, this is great, great stuff. We could talk for hours on this stuff, but let's round it out by talking about, uh, I'm curious, the second part, the secondary part of, of why well, I want to have you on um, USA hockey. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had an episode with Oscar Alsenfeld who is, big uh he's the general manager of the sdhl in sweden we talked about where are you guys going i haven't really dug into the swedish hockey federation that much yet uh mm -hmm. it's on my bucket list to to kind of talk about that we've 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 had some people that have worked within the swedish hockey federation to talk about hey where's the focus you know they're focusing right now a lot on women and yeah. and, and and growing girls hockey over there uh, but they're also focusing at the same time on the compete level. Yeah. So having most of most of my experience have been uh, working in a USA hockey affiliate. So I've been through learn to play. I've been through ADM. I've been through a lot of the initiatives that we've that we've had, uh, so on and so forth. Kind of what what do you see? Um, from USA Hockey's perspective, I know everybody wants to grow and sure. grow the numbers, yeah. but give us a little bit of a insider information about where USA Hockey is and where they're going. Well, we, you know, we we've created a strategic plan. There's a five-year plan in place, um, and I think on the elite side, I think we're we're really solid. I, I think most people don't who haven't been around. 
um, at the advent of the NTDP, but I think the NTDP, not just for the players that play there, um, which was groundbreaking, but I think because they participated in the NAHL for a period of time and now play a schedule in the USHL plus a college circuit, I think that caused everyone to raise the bar. Every single you know USHL and North American League team had to raise the bar. They had to raise their standards on development and training and coaching. And, and I think that's that's the reason why these numbers are where they're at versus where they were 25 years ago. So that helped, you know, that helped immensely. Um, we have a great relationship, I think, with the National Hockey League. I don't, I don't I'm, I'm a member of Congress. We just went through a, a massive change in governance at the, uh, at, at the request of the United States Congress and the USOPC. Um, and I was part of that governance committee that, cre- you know, created the new structure of our board. So we have a smaller board, but we have a Congress that oversees it and, and we elect the members of the board. Um, so I don't want to say these are these are my, purely my personal observations. The disclaimer. Uh, yeah, I have to say that. Um, That's good. It's good. But I, I, you know, our organization is it, we're made up of incredible volunteers. Um and that is, I think, has always been the backbone of, of USA Hockey. We have great volunteers across the uh, across the spectrum and every every affiliate to see the numbers um, grow the way they have. It's you know, it's not without challenge. Um, hockey is a cost intensive and time intensive sport. If you're fortunate enough to live in a state that has a rink, you know, a three iron away from your house. Well, that's awesome. And that places like Minnesota that exist. And certainly some of the New England states are really fortunate, but that's not the case across the country. It's a big footprint. And, you know, some of the some of our kids have to go really far to get to their rink. And and so participation is hard. But even uh, and I've had this conversation with people like Kim Davis at the National Hockey League and Bill Daly, who are, you know, awesome people and awesome supporters of, of USA Hockey. Uh, Kim heads up the diversity and uh, equity and inclusion initiative. Um, uh, the, the, I guess the culture change maybe is, is the, the word she's got a culture team. Um, and, and so just, just because you are a family of, of means that you have the, the money to play the sport, it often translates into not really having the time because if you're a family with three kids and the nearest rink is 30 minutes away, but the two other kids play local sports. I mean, if you think about for most kids in my market, their first experience in sport is in their own town. It's in, it's on the baseball field, the soccer field, lacrosse, whatever. Those things are in their town. So having the money and the means to play is one part of the, is certainly one part of the issue. Um, but having access is a big problem. And we've talked about this uh, with the folks at the NHL that, you know, they, they have an industry growth fund. They're spending $75 million a year to grow the game, which is important, but growing facilities is really, is really a critical thing right now. We need more. Uh, and I would argue more seasonal, like, you know, the big boxes will come. Um, the big three and four pad facilities will come. The Blaine's eight pads or 16, whatever, however many ranks they're up to now. Um, those will, those will come and, 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 but we need to support those with more seasonal facilities that, you know, can be operated, you know, without walls and just maybe with a roof and, and, and operate in the colder, the colder months and, and, and service local communities and local high school teams and, and, and so on. So I think that um, I think USA hockey is aware of that, which is kind of transitioning us rinks, which is part of our part of the family. Um, You know, nothing is, nothing is ever perfect, but we've got, you know, great coaching materials and we're always challenging ourselves to, to be better. Um, And uh, you know, our officiating initiatives are, are getting better and better. Uh, that is that is always a big challenge, um, and you know, ho- hopefully we we recognize the changing landscape, uh, and I think our five year strategic plan is is an attempt to do that and 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 work through the the challenges of today. I mean, I you know, there's an economic 
purported economic you know crisis looming and you know that will cause us to rethink how we approach you know a lot of things so um i think we're i think we're up to that challenge you know usa hockey is a governance arm and and it then divests its governance structure down to 34 different affiliates yeah and i think that's important so that you have local people involved in the management of the sport not a national monolith telling everybody what to do and sometimes i think i wish usa hockey would get a little bit more forceful in certain ways but you know we have those debates you know at every meeting and every call and you know i i couldn't be more proud uh not perfect we are far from it but man i couldn't be more proud to be part of of usa hockey and having been involved you know at that level for my first meeting was in 1993 um, when Baron Pittenger was leaving as executive director and Dave Ogren was coming in and I fostered a really great relationship with Dave and, uh, and have been involved ever since. And it's, it's an incredible group of dedicated people that genuinely care, um, at, at every level of the sport. I mean, when you think about, um, when you think about that, we've had blind hockey, uh, sled hockey, hearing impaired hockey special needs hockey i mean it's endless lbgtq hockey like it's we're trying to genuinely be hockey for everyone yeah and uh you know so there's always there's always people that can look at and i mean you, you've seen it anytime you're in a restaurant there's always somebody complaining you go to a, <laughs> go to a store it's easy to complain I find it easier to compliment now and 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 try to fix the the challenges that we have. And I think USA Hockey's just done a, a remarkable job. Well, and I think that it's it it they're always going to go back and forth and trying to figure out and 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 having continuous improvement is is important and figuring out what you know how do you stay in in front of the the landmines and not stepping on them and foresee <laughs> problems and and but also <clears throat> be hungry for for opportunities without making too many sharp moves and and um uh, and so on um we're gonna we're gonna end there i i'm, I'm gonna put a uh thank you for that kind of um usa hockey report i uh, uh, wasn't quite expecting that and we're gonna put these two documents in the in the link we'll figure out if we if if we just uh, what the best way to do that i may may work work that out with you to have just a link to something uh, so they can go directly to it. But um, if someone wants to reach you, what's the best way to reach you? They can reach me at uh, my personal email is probably easier. Uh, it's G D F H E F F at me.com. Not necessarily related to Hugh Hef, but. Uh, no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not yeah thanks a bunch uh this has been really really informative a lot of, a lot of facts a lot of you know for those this is going to be for the for the guys and gals that want to geek out on numbers uh some are going to be like 20 minutes in they're going to be like oh i don't want to hear anything about these numbers but there's a large population of us that are going to geek out on this and um so we want to make sure they get all that stuff out there i i just you know to get beyond the numbers, it comes back to what I started with. You know, we sport needs to be, and I, I, I referenced the Aspen Institute's report every year on youth sports. Ten years ago, I believe the number was we had 46% participation of our youth in youth sports. Today, it's 37%, and yet as an industry, it's grown to $21 billion. Youth sport is it. And, and that has everything to do with the elitism. Uh, the elitism factor. And that's why I'm saying we've got to transition back to uh, a transformational way of thinking about sport being a recreational place to get kids active. I do, last point, I, I do a little experiment that when, every time we have a level one referee seminar, um, I, it's usually 14 to 18 year olds. And I ask them to take their phone out and open up screen time and tell me how much screen time they've had for the week. And, and you 24 hours, 30 hours. And, and what are your top three apps? TikTok, Snapchat, and Instagram, almost all of them. And so these kids are spending so much time in social media 
and not enough time on the, you know, out in the courtyard or in the basketball court or the hockey rink. And, and so let's get them refocused and, and making sure that kids understand that you don't have to be a star to, to play any sport, just play it because you love playing it. And that's yeah. it. And that's the transformational speech. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much. Glenn, and we will uh, post this here. We've got a few in the backlog here, but we'll post it out here. And it's going to be right in the middle of people are going to pre-drafts and they're going to be all into this stuff. So it's going to be a good time. Thanks Thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Really good. I'm going to clip it right there. Thanks for for jumping, man. And and, uh, I'll let you know. I'll send you a link a couple of weeks before we post it. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, pal. Be well.